Welcome to episode 11 of the Statistically Insignificant podcast with me, your co-host, Eric Drysdale. And I'm Jared Hunter. In today's episode, we're joined by Steve Bank. Uh, Steve is a friend of Jared and I, and he's got a lot of interesting ideas. He's studied a lot of different things over his life, and I think you're going to find him to be a very interesting guest. So, Steve, why don't we get started by, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? What have you studied? What are your hobbies? Oh, uh, sure. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Steve. I'm a friend of you guys. I was born in Baltimore, grew up in Calgary, came out to U of T for school, did about three quarters of a bachelor in philosophy, and then had some health problems, went back for economics for a while, had some health problems for a while again. So I ended up kind of being a bit of a, like, I mean this in somewhat of a negative sense, but not autodidact. I'm still quite interested in, you know, philosophy and sort of uh, uh, political philosophy. And I like, um, I don't know if we talked about this, but I've, I'm somewhat of an enthusiast for the effective altruism movement. Yeah, that's kind of the, the main things to know about me. And Steve, what what links together the, all the different things you've studied over your life? Is there, is there a common theme? Like what causes you to shift from one discipline to another? That's a good question. I, th- I think some of it is just, you know, like back in the day, they just used to refer to uh, economics as part of moral philosophy because like moral had a more extensive meaning at the time. Like the economist Amartya Sen often introduces himself as a moral philosopher. And I think kind of, you know, thinking about morality and you know what we owe to each other what what is fair i think kind of leads into concerns both about like fairness within within democratic societies and also sort of economic development more generally both because you know there is such a difference in you know the life prospects for many people living in very poor countries versus developed countries and because you know sort of prospect a lot of prospects for the future depend on what we think economic development and economic growth will look like. Does that, that kind of make sense? Yeah. Are these, are these sort of ways of thinking about universal theories of human behavior, human happiness, human philosophy? It seems like these are kind of more global perspectives. I mean, yeah, but also just when you start thinking about morality all the time, it makes you more concerned with how that plays out in, in practice, I guess, rather than like purely a just the intellectual side of of understanding human behavior. Although I do find that like, um, like I've been trying to, to read more sociological theory lately, but it's, I'm lazy and also it's difficult, but yeah, so that's actually, that's a, that's a fair point, but it was kind of often the, um, that like kind of ethical views would drive me to want to understand political or economic issues. So, I mean, you've touched on like a lot of your learning and everything has been kind of from this moral standpoint i guess and so but you've focused more on like the humanities is there i guess a philosopher you've kind of uh, identified with more or are there any kind of particular moral theories that you've found resonated with you the most probably the like the late philosopher hillary putnam i was a big fan of partially just because like he's a very good writer and i don't know if you guys have ever like tried to read philosophy but it's it's really a mess <laughs> Uh, which is, I think, pretty unfortunate. But um, kind of, he kind of comes out of uh, like he's a very broad thinker, but he kind of comes out of the philosophical school called like American pragmatism, which is very much like I guess I would say like inspired by a spirit of scientific experimentation, 
kind of one of the founders of this philosophical movement, William James, was like a pioneering psychologist. And, you know, like Hillary Putnam was involved in uh, solving one of Hilbert's problems. So like he kind of has more of like a, a math background as well. So it's very much like I'm oversimplifying a bit, but like engaged with science and experimentation as social practices and ways of thinking about about basically every everything. It's It's a funny thing, right? Because I don't think there's a too controversial statement that science has made impressive progress that is not as notable in the humanities. Um, not that, like, I love the humanities, but like, you know, people write great literature, but it's not like we've said like, oh, we really have a lot of progress since Shakespeare or like Journey to the West or something. Uh, yeah, so that would kind of be background that I find persuasive. Is what you're saying, Steve, that Putnam and the American pragmatists have a sort of physics envy within moral philosophy, that they're trying to capture some of the scientific method for a field that maybe doesn't actually have the tools to drive progress in such a objective manner? That's a great question. And it's something that actually they've really tried to avoid. And some of that, I think, is it's kind of an interesting question of like, is there a scientific method? Do you know what I mean? Then you probably had to think about this in economics, Eric, of like, you know, should we be, because uh, I like, I think physics envy is a, can be a pretty serious problem. That's kind of why I kind of want to like, trying to stress the importance of experimentation and also fallibilism rather than specifically the modes of like the methods of the kind of most prestigious of the exact sciences, namely like physics. Does that make any sense? I'm not exactly sure, to be honest. Um, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, is, I would say as soon as you said fallibilism, I was kind of like, this is starting to go over my head here. <laughs> so this, is, this is like reading those philosophy books, Steve, that Jared and I probably, I don't, know, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't speak for you, Jared, but I'm not able to penetrate them. There's actually a volume of Kant's work that I, in my giveaway pile, I don't think I got past the introduction, to be honest. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, my familiarity, just to expand what you said, Eric, is just I heard of Hillary Putnam through one half year course I took at U of T about epistemology. And so I learned basically about brains and vats for a half a year. I think with the physics envy, you seem to be touching on a theme that I've kind of read about a little bit more recently, where um, people have argued that there's almost an inherent difference between kind of sciences versus moral questions, where sciences seem to be a very descriptive discipline. And so moral questions are kind of left out. But that's what allows physics to have almost made such progress, because it's really, as long as it's accurate, then you know that it's right. But with morality, we don't have that kind of check. I guess is how do they kind of address that then if they're trying to be pragmatic about morality, if, if there's not that ability to have that experimentation and correction kind of process or or were they able to manage that i think the like the lazy answer is that they try to do it holistically like there's I an see. expression i don't know if this is a expression from hillary putnam or from um there was uh, an earlier philosopher like a little more recent john dewey who was part of the same school who um i might be wrong about this but i think he had a saying that kind of like what works for scientific what is good in scientific reasoning is good for reasoning in general i know that's kind of like not a very great answer I, th I think just like the kind of variety of like social practices and cognitive abilities involved in doing science often end up being kind of more um, 
substantive and challenging than just making a mathematical model and check and you know just kind of looking at it or or checking it against some data like so many difficult cognitive challenges in evaluating theories and coming up with experiments and doing things like that and i think there is kind of a um again this might sound like kind of a cop-out but a desire to to act with that kind of intelligence in kind of all our theoretical thinking can i if i can step in there though but how is that different from those who kind of came before him right like were they are not what what would they do for these moral arguments then when they if they're not taking that kind of same care and logic crafted arguments i guess i'm i'm wondering what was the big shift though then i i would say um that i guess i should define what i mean by fallibilism of um kind of treating a lot of your beliefs as testable and revisable and trying to find a workable middle ground between being like a total skeptic about having knowledge and like being doctrinaire in sort of trying things and seeing what works. And it is kind of not, that is kind of not that informative because in established sciences, you'll kind of have kind of norms around how to understand what we mean by like what works. But then also when to sort of mix theories here, like when scientific paradigms change, it often gets really hard to just kind of mechanically evaluate scientific theories versus like evaluating individual projects in isolation. Uh, so, and I, I think that's kind of what they see as the, uh, to be honest, I don't know as much about pragmatism as I would like, but uh, that is sort of the continuity of broadly trying things and updating what you do in response to ex experience broadly construed. It sounds like if trying things and seeing what works, if this is a summary of Putnam and the American pragmatists, if, if that's correct, it seems like it actually it's a very conservative philosophy. I mean, not in like the, the traditional sense of the word conservatism, which is that we cannot think through what works without reference to the past, as opposed to this sort of Cartesian was associated with, I think, of like continental type thinking, which is we can just rewrite the entire criminal code a la Napoleon, right? We don't need reference to the common law. Is is this, is are, do conservative philosophers rely heavily on this pragmatic viewpoint? Because it sounds like it would fit nicely with how they think about things. I think that's actually quite an apt observation, but there's kind of just not a lot of politically conservative philosophers. So it's kind of hard to, or at least uh, prominent ones these days. And just uh, as far as I know, like as a sociological matter, a lot of them tend to be like Thomists, like interested in medieval philosophy and the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas, which I always found just totally like, I don't, it's like, I don't really understand the point of any of this. Just as like an empirical matter of what kind of people's views ended up being, like John Dewey was, uh, was a socialist. Uh, he was like vaguely, I guess, what you'd consider like the early 20th century progressive movement, which obviously has its ups and downs. And then Putnam actually had, this is actually one of those things where um, it kind of makes you think like, oh, like, you know, it's a good reminder that you can be a really brilliant thinker and, you know, get into some stuff where I just think it's it's nuts. But he was actually a supporter of like Maoism, I believe, in the 60s, which is obviously not sort of intellectually conservative in that sense. 
But there is a kind of like just to um, take that comparison with Descartes, sort of the guy who was sort of the founder of this philosophical school, uh, Charles Peirce. He kind of like kind of as a response to Descartes thought like you can't start with the idea of having no beliefs and then see where you go from that. You have to kind of start where you are and then, yeah, and, and evaluate on the basis of what you know and on the basis of experience and on the basis of reasoning. Uh, and, and, you know, he had some cute sayings about this, like, you know, just saying that you doubt something isn't actually doubting something. Doubting isn't like lying. I don't know if you guys know a lot about Descartes, but he had like a philosophical system that was starting with a pretty extreme skepticism about about knowledge and then trying to build up from from foundations about, you know, I can't doubt that I exist and I uh, and then, oh, I can prove the existence of God and then kind of working your way back to the knowledge that we need. And I do kind of think that project was unsuccessful and that it it tends to take you down some misleading territory um and and kind of what person was saying is like you can you can you know you can put the words i doubt in front of something like the external world exists that isn't the same as actually doubting it you know so it's not always clear where you go from that kind of skepticism does that kind of make sense yeah there's a foundationalism right with descartes i think therefore i am but then really you get kind of stuck because how do you prove anything from that statement and if i remember just kind of vaguely he had to basically say well then if i exist then there must have been something that made me thus there must be god and so then from all of that he derives all of the rest of the morality but like that link there always felt very tenuous to me so i guess that that's the break here with hillary if i can paraphrase is that instead of trying to go back and find some foundational truth you take a priori whatever you're at and then you build from there but you don't have to go down to the bedrock of knowledge really in a sense to try and find some kind of tautology even yeah that's exactly right and um and and that is kind of where it starts to overlap with uh pragmatist thinking about moral morality that like if you just had some, I'm like, I don't even really know how to conceptualize this, but someone who just had no values, desires, principles, you know, it's not really clear what, you know, some sort of clever argument would get them to versus like kind of thinking like, you know, I'm not really sure that's even something that conceptually makes sense. So kind of we kind of, and, and again, this is like in an intellectual sense, conservative, but kind of starting with like, there's, um, uh, there's a professor at U of T who I was a big fan of named Joseph Heath. He wrote a book about the nature of moral reasoning that was like explicitly pragmatist. And he was kind of starting from the idea of, well, do we really need an intellectual explanation of where norms from or uh, where norms come from, which is often an issue in, um, in philosophy. Uh, you know, human beings are subject to norms that are enforced. We are already sort of a wash in a network of social norms and that doesn't mean we can't approach those again with sort of an experimental attitude of it doesn't mean that you're just like kind of look we believe the things that we believe so what are you going to do you can kind of start to reevaluate something like the idea of chastity as a virtue by you know either kind of 
how it looks in, com in comparison to your other moral views, how it fits together with sort of your scientific scientific understanding of the world, just kind of trying to forge a reasonable system out of what you have rather than from some, yeah, foundational point. Interesting. So I guess from that, it does seem to kind of lend itself to, okay, we have an idea about what should be right in the world, but then we want to understand how does the system work so that then we can craft it better, I guess. I guess, can you go into a little bit more about like, how did you take some of this philosophy, I guess, as your prior belief system? And then when you started to go into economics, I wonder how that might have colored your first impressions of the discipline and how you might have been able to then take that new um, set of information and, and move forward with it. Oh, man, less well than I would hope. The <laughs> I think everyone moves forward with information less well than they hope. So yeah, you're, yeah, that's, you're not that's alone. <laughs> I think um, because so much economics education is so technical, to be honest, I don't really know if, if at the level I made it to, it was super helpful. It kind of meant I would ask a lot of kind of dumb questions. Like I remember in my, uh, you know, I had to take some math course and we were talking about on the sets or something. And I was like, now, when you say this set equals this other set, are you saying that they ha share some magnitude in common or that they are literally the same identical mathematical object? And the teacher just looked at me like I was just like the dumbest, weirdest person, which is like, I think, fair. So I, it kind of has not, if I do go further, I'm maybe optimistic about how uh, philosophy could be informative, like particularly with regards to issues in like what's called rational choice theory. I think like a lot of philosophers have had interesting things to say about that, but I was kind of calculating elasticities the way everybody else was in my class. And Steve, sorry, you're very good. I've, I've noticed when, when any conversation we've had of, of summarizing other people's viewpoints, but are you a pragmatist yourself or you just find them interesting? I don't know. I mean, it's it's funny because it is like a kind of a 19th century thing. Like it almost starts to be a little bit cosplaying if you're too like, I am a pragmatist, you know, like, you know, I'm a Jacobite, I'm a Carlist. You know, maybe this is a stereotypical answer, but I often think, just think I don't, I don't really know. Like I try to, um, I try to be informed by this stuff, but like my actual like substantive views on the kind of problems of philosophy or the methods of philosophy, I'm often just kind of, eh, it's hard to say. Do you think that when it comes to economics, there's a sort of comparison here, which is that I've, I've heard various prominent economists espouse this viewpoint, which is that the the complaint about that economists are always saying on the one hand, on the other hand, that's actually the point of economics, which is that it's basically a, a collection of vignettes of different markets and dynamics that emerge from different settings. And it's the economist's job to sort of know, ah, this is the the story I need to pull out of the, the toolkit to understand how this market is working. I, I, I don't know if you believe, do you believe that that's true? And is there any relationship to philosophy where you personally see as needing to pull out, sometimes you need to pull out a Cartesian card and other times you need to pull out a Putnam card? Um, I guess so. People often talk about that in terms of, not everyone would agree with this like spectrum, but like a spectrum from... Kant's moral views to Aristotle's, where like Kant's views kind of get stereotyped as, well, we can figure out our duties from rationality, 
and you act on your duty and that's kind of all we can really say about morality which i don't think is really accurate view to Kant's views but it's kind of like a supposed like kantian frame versus like aristotle's ideas of virtues where it would be like well you know there's two vices like cowardice and foolhardiness and you need to find the golden mean behind that and it's part of this whole picture of living a good life and being a good person and I do think it often makes sense to think, well, and even Hilary Putnam, I think, specifically said this, of trying to pull that Kantian rationalism about morality in a more substantive Aristotelian direction. So, yeah, so yes, I think so. And I also pretty strongly agree with that view of economics as giving you sort of interesting stories and models and frames that really illuminate different situations. Uh, like, there are things like supply and demand, which is like, fairly intuitive. I don't think people, when you explain supply and demand to someone, they're like, oh my God. But like, when you talk about something like collective action problems are not a super difficult thing to understand intellectually. But once you kind of internalize the idea that a lot of social problems result from uh, collective action problems, you kind of see them everywhere. And I think you gain a lot of insight into what's going on in different kinds of social conflicts. And similarly, like, I think the the biggest example of something that conceptual that economists have come up with that you wouldn't think of would be comparative advantage. And that's not to say that comparative advantage is the most useful framework for understanding every kind of trade or every kind of interaction. But compared to not understanding comparative advantage, your understanding of something like trade would be deeply impoverished without that understanding. And just like kind of furthermore, like Hillary Putnam kind of talked about it in a way that can kind of start to sound sort of relativistic, where a, a, any kind of description is going to be a description for a certain purpose. And I think that kind of is like an extremely abstract version of that kind of going into the economist toolkit is, you know, you're kind of going into general sort of toolkits of thinking, even just to describe any situation. Sorry if that's like super abstract. No, that's actually a very interesting answer. Uh, that definitely makes sense. My last follow-up on this line of questioning, at least, is I was under the impression that, you know, a lot of people, this wasn't describing your experience per se, but people who, for example, joined economics programs after the financial crisis because, you know, they want to understand what had happened. This was very similar after the Great uh, Depression of the 1930s that a lot of the economists that are household names, right, like, Milton Friedman, for example, like they became economists, I think, in large part because they wanted to understand what <laughs> this catastrophic economic event was. And I think a lot of students going into economics programs and, you know, the 2010s onwards were sort of like, it's like, wait, like, why am I learning about aggregating demand curves? Like, what does this tell me about the financial crisis? Right. And and for you, I guess it might have been a bit different in that, you know, you came in with this like this, maybe a, a hope that this might tie together with some more broader themes of, you know, I don't know, a just society or maybe more philosophical principles. Did you feel let down when you when you took economics that it wasn't actually even bothering or even had the pretense to try to address some of these more broader sociological issues? Not really. I think because um, like mainstream economics can get such a bad rap among humanities people that I, d I was kind of not very Pollyannish about it going in. Like, and I do think economists are extremely interested in things like, you know, productivity growth, the relationship between sort of technology in the ordinary language sense, like 
inventing the internet and technology in the sense of the aspect of productivity growth or they're like it's not like people aren't concerned with development and health and things like that they're just like very difficult problems you know maybe that means that sort of the economist toolkit has its limits but that's i think you got to be realistic about kind of any intellectual framework like if we if we could just kind of you know plot some curves and see where they intersect and then there'd be no poverty in the world then there'd be no poverty in the world as to kind of the like biographical question like yeah i did kind of get into that same kind of like particularly like you know economics blogs were such a big thing in late aughts and the early tens so, so um you know that was a easy way to get into that and and also like i used to have quite left-wing views when i was younger and because uh joseph stiglitz was kind of vaguely involved with anti-globalization paul or like critics of globalization and because paul krugman was so directly involved in criticizing the war in iraq to be honest i think that gave me a bit more like social leeway to be like oh i'm gonna embrace this businessy kind of neoliberal view of the world as like someone might put it in a, in a less charitable way if that makes any sense yeah no no i i i understand that and actually let me ha have one more follow-up question about the steve so i'm not sure if you heard but so the nobel prize winners for this year are going to be card angrist and imbins um, for their work on causal modeling basically using statistical approaches and this has basically become the rage in economics which is that most papers now in economics in the top journals are empirical papers and they try to use some of these identification strategies to so-called find the causal relationships in the data do you, do you have any opinion on whether this is the the right way for economics to go because it is the way it's going i was thinking because we were going to talk about economics about kind of some things i like about economics and things that i less happy about with economics and one of them was actually these kind of methodological innovations in empirical economics. It can get a little into, oh, you know, you find this neat effect and isn't that a funny kind of methodology that can kind of start to look like the worst of like social psych. Regardless of wh whether you think people draw too many conclusions from CARD's research on the minimum wage. And I think there is a danger with these this kind of focus on empiricism that people don't think super hard about like, how does this generalize? What's the external validity of this? What does this mean? But I don't, I don't really think that's a criticism of doing that in general. Like, I think it's both sort of a stimulating, fruitful thing for the social sciences and has actually just like gotten us some interesting information to use these kind of natural experiments using um, creative methodologies of in empirical economics. Actually, I'm curious, and Jared, feel free to answer this question as well, which is, have either of you changed your view on either some economic phenomena or policy because of a natural experiment done by one of these causal methods in econometrics? I can go first. I did, not recently, but it was a long time ago, that when I did hear about these causal studies on the minimum wage, because prior to learning about these studies, I was like, oh, well, Milton Friedman must have been right. Minimum wage, it's just going to hurt everyone who whose labor wasn't maybe quite worth that, or it's going to do nothing. Whereas then they literally did this study, and it made an impact on giving a bunch of people a higher salary and had 
an indetectable, an undetectable effect on employment. So to me, that that canonical one that they actually won the award for pretty much, uh, I say actually did Im impact my thought process behind that for sure. Something that I wouldn't necessarily have figured about, like Jared and I had been talking about this, about what is it? I forget what this methodology is called, but where you look at the people who just barely got into some fancy Ivy League school, and then you look at the people who just barely didn't. So you have like basically comparable groups and seeing both that the sort of already doing very well students, there was, you know, not really a difference between them, but seeing that students from poorer or more disadvantaged backgrounds did see some benefit from going to fancy schools, which, you know, you could kind of think of as some sort of example of, you know, probably the, the value of uh, social networks are much greater uh, if you're from a more disadvantaged background. And I think I would just not have had, I mean, this is interesting because like, I think I just wouldn't have had an opinion about that versus, you know, when you have a very defined opinion, if you see a natural experiment, it can be easy to then just be like, well, here's why it doesn't apply, you know? So it's, it's uh, so I kind of see where you're going with that. It's kind of funny you bring up that example, Steve. And and by the way, the method you're talking about is regression discontinuity design, RDDs. My perspective on whether it's instrumental variables, IVs, RDDs, or matching methods using propensity scores or some other sort of covariate balancing approach, which is that the validity of them comes from statistical models that make sense in isolation, which is that even if you grant that the identification is as clean as the authors want it to be, as a as a discipline, because now so many economists are using RDDs and IVs that are significantly underpowered, and there's research showing that that's unambiguously the case, um, I, I, that these findings, these kind of cutesy kind of pop phenomena findings that come up, it's like, oh, it turns out actually raising prices doesn't lower demand or like, oh, it turns out that really education is all signaling because you get in and you're not, you're just as smart, but you get a better outcome. Like, I'm worried that it's just the, it's just the filter effect that we're just seeing these kind of headlines show up because there's so many economists chasing all of these various signals. I don't know if you have any concern about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and like some of that just stems from, you know, these kind of concerns about generalizability. Even if we grant the idea that, you know, very capable, very prepared students can succeed, have as much professional success or whatever, whether they go to the University of Michigan or to Yale, you know, how much does that generalize to, I don't want to dunk on people's university, I don't know, like the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, if any people listening went there, like too bad. Um, There's only three people that listen, don't worry. I don't think any of them go to Nevada. That's good. I mean, I think there was a very analogous problem in social psychology over the past, I don't know, 20 years, where um, because there's an enthusiasm, both because, uh, like an enthusiasm for kind of cutesy quirks of human behavior, there's an incentive to publish things like that. And man, they, they dealt with some pretty serious methodological problems there, but you kind of end up in aggregate being exposed to this constant thing of, oh, if you stand up straighter, it makes you more confident. And if you uh, hold a pen in your mouth then it makes you happier and just kind of all these weird quirks that end up kind of pointing, like painting a picture of human beings as 
really like quite dumb and capable of having deep changes to their beliefs and behaviors from like dumb bullshit that doesn't matter. And like, I think that was really destructive for psychology as a field uh, in terms of like how as a, as a lay person, uh, when I, now when I hear about a psychology, a, a social psych study that has that kind of structure, I'm just totally dismissive. I think I don't know enough about the details of empirical economics or econometrics to have a more detailed opinion than that. I want to pivot a little bit away from just economics as a field in and of itself and more about how any of these kind of scientific disciplines can actually kind of have a more broader effect on like the general public, either through even just, I guess what we see right now, let's talk about even just the vaccine debate. There seems to be this diminishing role in politics, I guess, actually in general for people to be able to agree on a set of facts in the world right now. I wonder then, what do you see as science's role within like politics right now when it feels like people are able to just pull whatever studies they want and be able to find some kind of evidence to back up whatever opinion they've already had? Like, how can we, uh, yeah, where, where should the experts kind of fit into this I don't know. Sometimes I just think we're kind of screwed. <laughs> like, um, maybe just as a starting point, there's kind of like two illustrative problems that I think a lot about. One of which is the kind of the fan club around uh, the anti-parasitic drug ivermectin. So there's a um, there's an anti-parasitic drug called ivermectin. It's somewhat and fairly, in my view, demonized as just a drug for horses. It's used to treat river blindness which is actually like pretty important thing uh, in human beings. And there has both kind of been a lot of experimentation in like, oh, how are we going to treat this new disease that we have? And there's, I think there's some suggestion that in vivo studies of, or sorry, in, uh, in vitro studies of um, this drug ivermectin show an effect on the replication of viruses. Now, because of that, there is this like, in, in my opinion, kind of difficult to explain fandom around this drug and i kind of say difficult to explain because like the mechanism that was identified for inhibiting the replication of, of viruses you cannot really reasonably get to that drug level in human beings like that's not really how it would work when you take ivermectin and when you don't have a mechanism it, i think it should make you much more skeptical of a field of research that has a lot of kind of contradictory you know s small and poor research methods stuff that's pointing you in the direction of saying that it works and i i think the thing that i've found particularly interested in is that a lot of people who've gotten into it who i don't think are stupid at all uh, and I think it's starting to look like just fraudulent studies have played a very large role in the apparent evidence base for this drug. And of course, you know, you have a couple weird studies that find a tremendous effect, then a meta-analysis will, will then look very different. And I think it's kind of just not really, um, I think it's very understandable, to be honest, that someone would just not think of that as a thing that would reasonably happen like it's still very strange to me that people that anyone you know more than one person would forward a study like this like if you are trying to navigate that by yourself even if you are like a reasonably smart person i think there's just a lot of pitfalls that are hard to avoid but at the same time we've seen 
these huge declines in social trust. And sometimes the, this is where I think it gets difficult. Sometimes I think the skepticism about expertise is quite justified because I think there's some truth to criticisms both that or a, a fair number of criticisms of sort of public health establishment stuff about, you know, being very married to these views about, about skepticism of airborne transmission of the virus or like kind of misleading people about the usefulness of masks early on to preserve masks for healthcare workers. And as well as like, I think, um, I do think there's a lot of people, particularly people who become sort of, you know, scientific celebrities who do kind of want to push a certain moral and political vision of the world onto people using their expertise as kind of a bludgeon. And I, I think we've seen this in like a pretty, actually like pretty serious way with FDA evaluations of third doses for the vaccine, where some people at the FDA very saw, very much saw it as a concern that, sorry, they were concerned that if they approved it, this would have a negative effect on global vaccine equity, which is 100% a reasonable concern and a concern that I share. And I think all things considered, I would probably agree with the moral and um, political views of these experts, but it's just really not their role in a democratic society to making those decisions. So I, I feel like we're kind of, I don't know if you guys see it this way, but I feel like we're a little bit caught between a rock and a hard place because there's both, I think, a real need for criticism of scientific authorities and public health authorities and sort of like expertise and also we're not really equipped to do it yeah i i get what you're saying i wonder too as a kind of a clarifying question for you like do you see it as there already exists someone who should be in that role that could have then superseded the fda and said look, you guys just judge the effectiveness of the third dose and I make the moral judgment about equitable distribution around the globe? Or is it that there is a vacuum and so the FDA felt as though they had to step into that role? Because I think which of those two it is may have an implication on what an appropriate response might be. I've got to say that I just don't know. Like kind of the two comparison cases I would I, I would think of would be like, like, because initially the FDA just evaluated safety and this, you know, within the kind of bureaucracy of the FDA early on, this was not always, you know, this is not kind of the way the often very well-informed professionals within the FDA wanted to work because they also wanted to evaluate efficacy. And, and there was some kind of like jockeying to start thinking of like, well, you know, actually efficacy is a safety consideration because if there's this weird patent medicine that pe uh, people are taking, we need to know the effective dose to know if it's safe at that dose, which is true, but also, you know, a little, maybe a little bit disingenuous. Uh, and I, I think there is just kind of a problem of, of mission creep, especially right now when there are like, uh, actually, I'm, I'm curious, maybe Eric wouldn't agree with this. I think there's pretty strong professional norms about the role of central banks in most Western countries, which isn't to say they necessarily live up to those norms, but there's kind of an agreed upon like, oh, this is our business, this isn't our business. Versus, you know, the pandemic has been so um, 
disorienting that a lot of the like I think I think it's often people find it harder to say whose job it is to do what, especially given you know how urgent and terrible a lot of this is. Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily want to disagree with you, Steve. For me, and feel free to comment on what I'm about to say. I I think that the this trend towards disillusionment towards expertise uh, is, of course, partly justified, but but why it's partly justified might be different than what most people think, which is that because an elite discourse, uh, and again, you can disagree if you think this is wrong, right, which is that the the claim to being driven by the facts or the science, you know, capital S trademark after that, is a necessary and a sufficient argument in any debate. And so, Every we'll use Canada as an example, right? Every single premier throughout their entire term has said, you know, I have made decisions of public policy being driven by the science and scientific expertise, right? And we know that can't literally be true because their policies, decisions they have made have been significantly different. So either there is no scientific viewpoint because there's disagreement, each of their advisors gives them different advice, or more realistically, which I think is obvious, Right, which is that science is, is has been weaponized. Right, it's it's a mechanism by which elites and policymakers can get to the outcome that they want, and it's probably similar. And I wasn't around in the 13th century, but in the same way that theology, I'm sure, was also weaponized because in an environment where religious arguments are both necessary and sufficient, you're also going to have this temptation for priests to become politicized, which is, by the way, exactly what you saw for, during the medieval ages, right? Um, and so experts themselves are becoming politicized because when policy decisions require scientific backing, uh, there's quotes around scientific in my mind when I'm saying this, it's just inevitably going to be the case that the experts themselves become the target of political persuasion on either side. Yeah, I think I more or less agree with that. It's just, it's such a difficult problem because like I'm often fetching about expertise as an ideology in kind of the way you are, but you know, like my family's in Alberta. So like I've spent a fair amount in the past, you know, month or two, just like tearing what little hair I have out of my head. And it's, it's, it's difficult because I think that's your criticisms of sort of like, you know, kind of what I would call like, you know, ex expertise as an ideology or as an identity, I think is basically correct, but also kind of what I see as like a proper role of expertise has been greatly devalued. And I guess you could say that those go hand in hand, but again, it just starts to become like a very difficult problem. Um, and I don't really know what to do about it. Well, I think it's because not, this is by no means a, a comprehensive theory here, but I think a lot of the problem, you want to talk about central banks earlier, is that expertise is now linked to personal self-interest, right? Like it's hard to take the expertise of central bankers when they come from a socioeconomic class where their policies, they or engage in, excuse me, further entrench, you know, the existing wealth structure of society. And again, in the same way that it's hard to argue, or sorry, it's hard to agree with, say, 
you know, the the Bishop of Paris in the 14th century when his arguments claim that, you know, God wants there to be a natural hierarchy of human beings with the king at the top, right? Like it's, the, the arguments appear self-serving. And in the case of science, it's a little bit more difficult to kind of link to explicitly what that self-interest is. But I mean, like science as a whole, and, and you saw this especially around the debates around the origin of the, of the COVID virus, right? Was it a lab leak? Did it just emerge through, you know, a pangolin and the Wuhan wet market, right? Where science closed ranks and said, this is against science's interest to have these theories percolating about a lab leak because that's going to undermine our financing and, you know, reduce confidence in the sort of work we're doing. And so there's a perfect example of science being self-interested. Um, and so when I see things like the March for Science, to be honest, it makes me very concerned because the March for Science, by definition, is going to have to provoke a counter backlash to what the whatever they're make their claims they're making are explicitly political and hence economic. So, well, I guess to push back a little bit there, though, I mean, yeah, science did circle the wagons a little bit. And, you know, Fauci was like, oh, no, 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 it's definitely not a lab leak and whatnot. But that has kind of reversed itself in the medium term, I think. There's been more and more, even from the scientific fields and, you know, the WHO and everything talking about, hey, look, we haven't been able to rule this out. And it does happen. I guess maybe they're, you know, only because it failed do we see it as an example that we can actually talk about. And so maybe there are examples that just haven't failed. And so that's why we don't know about them. But to me, I'm not sure if I see the scientific community as that far gone quite yet, I guess. Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying at all. all. All I'm saying is that, like, there if, if you know, if you have an economic, let's say you're an economist here and you want to model, like, what is the utility function of science, right? scientists, excuse me, rather, you know, and one of the variables is going to be, you know, the pursuit of knowledge, okay, the pure pursuit of knowledge. And, and I do think that that motivates a lot of what scientists do. But there are other considerations, right? And some of those considerations are, for example, um, the reputation and esteem of their colleagues, right? And so the you know, one of the criticisms that was made of central banks and the financial crisis is like, it's like, how come all of the financial transfers went to the other banks? Like, you know, why wasn't it, you know, uh, checks in the mail to average individuals? Why didn't you buy these sorts of securities? And, you know, there are all sorts of good technical reasons why that was the case. But I think people can't help but think that probably because they spend most of their time with bankers every day, you know, central bankers are just naturally going to imagine that these are the right people to handle you know, the trillions of dollars of uh, quantitative easing that's going to be pumped into the economy. And, and again, it's it's not that there it's not that there isn't any truth or validity to what they're doing. It's just that there is another consideration that sways the behavior. And so it's not that scientists would never acknowledge something that was true. It's just that their reaction function is going to be linked to other considerations beyond just what actually is a, a fact of uh, the material world. Especially then in the short term, probably as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think it's kind of it's it's very hard to evaluate these things in real time or near real time because like I think it's hard to talk about this whole lab leak issue without getting into kind of polarization specifically around Donald Trump, who like is all, like as always like kind of all over the place. But I think a lot of people were it was a somewhat unique situation in people being 
worried about, you know, and I maybe this, I don't think this is really the proper role of scientists, but, you know, they're worried about, you know, international peace. They're worried about, you know, kind of xenophobia or anti-Asian racism and, and things like that. And I think it's also a difficult issue because like, yeah, like when you look at sort of the people really kind of pushing the lab leak theories, it's often people in sort of adjacent fields. There's a, a woman named Alina, Alina Chan. Um, yeah, uh, she's a molecular biologist who has been, you know, she's good at social media. She's writing a book with a, a popular science guy. While virologists tend to be quite skeptical, and it's a it's a funny thing because I I honestly am just not equipped to evaluate the arguments of vi virologists for why they why they are so dismissive. And I I just don't really again I just kind of don't really know what to do about that. Actually, I'm going to pivot the conversation a little bit, but it's not unrelated, which is, you know, you said you have family in Alberta, and I believe you also have family in the United States, because that's where you were born originally. And do you have any thoughts about, I know this is such a broad question, so like take any line you want from it, but any reason why Canadian society relative to American society has been much less hesitant about vaccines or prone to buying up, you know, ivermectin or other such kind of uh, almost conspiratorial like fads i mean i don't really have a great explanation of this but just kind of sorry if it sounds like i have a, i guess maybe i have an ideological axe to grind but i think in the states elites in the broader republican party and conservative voters are in a very unhealthy dynamic i think a lot of republican elites which i would include you know Republican aligned media in um, in the kind of broader party in the same way that you might think of like, you know, Vox is kind of part of the broader coalition of the, sorry, uh, VOX, not Fox, is part of the Democratic coalition in some ways. But that um, the, uh, the elites are extremely irresponsible and that when elites uh, within their like Republican party try and push things in a more responsible direction, there's pushback from below. Like, um, like I don't know if you saw this clip of at a rally, Trump encouraging people to get vaccinated and people just like booing in response. And sort of similarly, I think Fox News really has to worry about losing market share to, you know, the One American News Network or someone totally bonkers if they kind of were pushing the same line as the News Corp stuff in, um, in the UK is, which is totally like normal about uh, vaccination. And I, I think it's like, I think it's kind of, it's, that's, it's really hard to say where that has started because it, ex it, um, it definitely existed in the fifties when the John Birch society was, was around. And when kind of, I, I think they're just the conservative movement that took over the Republican party has, has kind of just really fucked them up. Yeah. I don't, I don't really have a lot more. I, I think that's a big part of, um, also, uh, or sorry, I should say, I have, do have something more constructive to say that I think the Amer because American political institutions are so sclerotic, I, th I think their political system gets really screwed up because there's more incentive for political actors to say really extreme or bizarre things, knowing that they won't be able to pass the legislation that they want. And also the system is less responsive to um, the needs of the populace and also you know, it's pretty, um, I think it's a very alienating thing for people who are invested in politics in regardless of their ideology to watch, for instance, like the bickering right now around, you know, the 
climate parts of Biden's infrastructure bill, just trying to herd the cats to get every Democrat to vote for it is just kind of not, it's not really clear that there, that's, it's probably, I guess it's just not going to happen now. Well, in Canada, because there's less veto points, I think all of those things are less of an issue. And I think that political, the political institutions and the political culture have had a unhealthy feedback in the United States. So, yeah, I think it's undeniable that it is this kind of interaction between the actual system and this kind of grassroots alienation or like this kind of minority that has been kind of zealotrized that has then been able to take over these institutions. But I wonder if you have a better sense, because I maybe this is because I'm only I have BC roots and Toronto roots. And so I don't really know many people from Alberta, maybe distant, distant members of my family. And so I wonder if you could maybe give us a sense, because you had grown up there for a while, do you see that similar kind of minimum minority of the population that has just kind of become really fundamentalized, I guess, on that kind of wing of belief? Do you see a similar pocket of that in Canada, uh, in kind of the Western provinces, which I'm I'm assuming is maybe the most likely place for it to be? Or is there really a kind of a, a difference in Canadians at that kind of population level? It's an interesting thing because I was I was thinking about this of like, well, what are the differences between, you know, being in Toronto and being in Cal or the sort of culture of Toronto and the culture of Calgary? And to be honest, I don't really think they're that different. I think a lot of Anglo Canada, maybe outside the Maritimes, is like pretty homogenous. But like, there is kind of there's a different kind of default political ideology of just sort of a young person who's not super involved in politics where people are a little more conservative but that is a but it, i don't think that is really um but it is i think the minority that is you know for instance anti-vaccine or kind of kind of radicalized in this sort of like very low trust populist kind of conservatism is is actually kind of small and i think there's uh, like a couple reasons for that. And I think one of them is that it's very different. If it's, I think it's very, um, again, in terms of like the feedback between the political system and people's political beliefs, I think it's very hard to have a kind of right-wing populism that is popular in different parts of Canada. So the political set, success of right-wing populism, it tends to be pretty limited overall. Where like, like for instance, suddenly blanking on his name, um, people, Bernier. I saw an interesting clips of like him speaking in uh, rural Alberta somewhere, talking about kind of the evils of radical multiculturalism versus when he was speaking in, you know, North Etobicoke, he would be talking more about vaccines or kind of talking about the elites, you know, and I think because, you know, the kind of, because we have such a different political culture uh, and different political institutions in Canada, building a coalition of like the kind of person that would be a little paranoid or a little low trust, but that they just don't overlap enough in Canada, uh, in different regions of Canada, like the the kind of, you know, sort of prototypical Rob Ford voter in Etobicoke, who's maybe parents are Caribbean background under their immigrants from Pakistan or wherever is just has extremely different populist concerns than populist in Alberta. While in the States there, in terms of politically active people, there is now like a, a relatively uh, unified and sometimes politically 
successful movement. And but I, I do think I think there's definitely I mean, it's I maybe I shouldn't make predictions, but I think there's definitely an element of that in Alberta. It's just really it's just like what I think one thing I really noticed growing up in Alberta that I think people don't always realize here is how difficult it is to keep a conservative party together in Canada. And I think because of that, there's always this push and pull between, you know, are we trying to get this kind of electable Aaron O'Toole guy, or are we trying to, you know, kind of give the base what it wants, or, you know, under someone quite politically successful like Stephen Harper, there was constant push and pull of like, you know, we're in the government, how come social conservatism is still so anathema? So I, th I think just our, our I, I would kind of, I think that's somewhat of an explanation of the political differences. I don't know if you guys agree. Yeah, I think I agree because I've seen the outside of it. I don't feel like I have the firsthand experience with it. Like I don't have a large enough sample size of people that I can interact on an, on a personal basis to gauge like that are from that kind of viewpoint that are very actively involved in the Conservative Party. I mean, Eric is probably one of the most politically active people that I know, but he's a red Tory, it feels like to me. I don't know. He, he doesn't seem representative. If You're I'm the kind right of uh, Laurentian <laughs> scumbag that wants to screw over Alberta, Eric. <laughs> well, I mean, the only reason the Conservative Party exists in its current form, I mean, that was, uh, I think it was 2003 or 2004 when it came back together after a mm -hmm. uh, multi-decade. Stuck day and stuff. Yeah, after a multi-period, uh, decade period. Well, I mean, I guess it wasn't that long. It was after, after, after Mulroney, it all fell apart for a decade or so. Is because of first past the post. So I think it's interesting that if the NDP gets the proportional representation voting system they want in Canada, the Conservative Party will change very differently. There will be multiple ones. And if the Liberals get their ranked voting system so that they can maintain power ad infinitum, um, then the Conservative Party will also change and again, there might be two parties. So, I, I mean, the Canadian Conservative Party is a quirk of our geography and our electoral system, but I don't personally believe that there is an objectively good way to elect parties or governments in, in countries per se. So I just think it's kind of an amusing um, reality of Canada. I don't have any strong viewpoints yeah. on it, to be honest. I agree. And I think um, I think. I'm much more uh, much more uh, skeptical of proportional representation than basically everyone I know with an opinion about proportional representation. And I think a lot of that comes from being from Alberta and seeing these like really constant and difficult infighting among conservatives and and um, seeing like and then I, 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 I've, I've felt this way for a long time. It, the only time I've written something and gotten like mean comments was writing something for the uh one of the u of t papers against proportional representation but i feel like my I, I feel a little bit vindicated because canada has not seen the kind of really scary rise in populism that we've seen in so many western countries where you know um once you have something like alternative for deutschland or something in your parliament it becomes very like like, do you cooperate with them? Do you not cooperate with them? And then kind of bolster their populist bona fides. Like, it's it's a it's like a pretty it can be a pretty bad thing. Well, I kind of just enjoy watching Bernier not win his own seat in like Boos or wherever he's from. You know, 
I guess in one sense that yeah, there is some formalism to the AFD having won in Germany, but I feel like the most recent election is almost a pro for proportional representation. I mean, the AFD has really stalled in its uh, support, and it seems like there is just a ceiling to their extremism and the fact that the SPD has kind of come out and seems to be the kingmaker and they're going to have to make a kind of three-party coalition, like it seems like Germans have really tacked to the center. Now, I don't know, like I do think that the, the voting system that you choose has to take into account what the culture of the country is. And so the same voting system, proportional representation could be right for Germany and wrong for Canada. I think that could be fine. But I don't know. I, I guess I see that as Germany's kind of a success story for proportional representation because they have that the vote is accurately reflecting the wants of the people and the AFD is still successfully relegated to doing absolutely nothing, despite the fact that there are politicians elected under that banner. Well, and to further that point, Jared, I completely agree. I, I don't think that first past the post is the best electoral system in general. It might be the right system for Canada now, but if anyone would want to make an argument against it, it would be the United States where, as Steve has pointed out, right, whereas the first past the post forces conservative and quotation mark voters who wouldn't vote for the same party to vote for the same party in Canada. In the U.S., that is not what happens, is that I'm pretty sure a Republican in Arizona is a lot like a Republican in Florida it was a lot like a Republican in Ohio, right? They love Donald Trump. They share similar viewpoints of the world. And so that system doesn't particularly seem to work well for the United States. So I think it's going to vary by the country. You could make arguments for uh, what system is best for Canada, but what is true, I don't think anyone can deny, I mean, this would be, I think, a totally radical argument to make, which is that the voting system that every Canadian political party espouses is not also the voting system that is the in their best interest. It's not a coincidence the NDP wants proportional representation and the Liberals want a ranked ballot. Like that is not a random idea. It's not even consistent with their ideological principles. It's just a pure power politics move, of course. Uh, can we expect anything else from politicians? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you guys are right about like AFD, but like in like for instance, like in I think there's problems with like in Scandinavia, like the the Sweden Democrats and like different uh, Danish parties have come to power, and also the amount that mainstream parties I think have to move in often sort of scary directions, in often in response to these uh, kinds of parties. Well, uh, but anyway, I guess I'm nitpicking. Fair enough. Well. Thanks, Steve, for this really interesting conversation. I'm, I'm glad we've been able to go over a lot of the topics that I know I wanted to hear your answers and, and get some stuff on the record from you. Um, although, I, again, I'll repeat, I think you're very good at summarizing other people's views. Um, so you haven't you haven't given too much away so far, which I think is fun. Um, but in our last section, we're going to go to the uh, underrated versus overrated categories, where I'm just going to list off some words or terms, and I want to get your reaction. Um, obviously, whether you think they're underrated or overrated, or feel free to say neutral or pass. Um, are you ready? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. All right. The categorical imperative. Oh, too misunderstood to be adequately rated. I think it's, um, I guess, probably overrated. I, I think um, I think it doesn't do the things that people often want it to do 
in philosophy. I think people often want Kant's moral philosophy to provide both like a decision mechanism in the way that sort of ideal, um, what was the term Bentham used? Like philosophic calculus, like in the way that utilitarianism provides a decision process. And I think people also want it as an, um, an argument against moral skepticism or moral nihilism. And it is neither of those things. So I will say it is overrated. All right, fair enough. Number two, continental philosophy. Mm, I don't doesn't everyone hate continental philosophy? I kind of think it's, I think that's appropriate. I think it's um, uh, like, at least, you know, kind of, uh, I think, I mean, things have changed since I've studied philosophy, but I think there was kind of a, a, a sense that like, eh, this stuff kind of sucks, but you should probably read Gore and Nietzsche. And I think that is about correct. <laughs> okay. I didn't know that. That's interesting. All right. The third one, nudge economics. Used to be overrated. Then people realized, then people downgraded it in response to the passing of time and experience and, uh, and also I think the replication crisis in uh, psychology. So it's accurately rated now or it's? Yes, I, I think so. Okay. Uh, the credibility revolution, which we sort of touched on with the questions about um, identification in, in econometric models. I don't know. How would you rate that? <laughs> like I, um, it's, it's very hard for me to, to judge because I don't actually, I don't think I have a good sense of uh, uh, like, uh, like the only professional economist I know, I think would have a very high opinion of it. And I think, you know, Danny Roderick would probably be a little more ambivalent. So I, I, I just don't know enough about how well it's rated. Well, that was two uh, away from now, which was Danny Roderick, underrated or overrated? Underrated. Why? Because uh, no one reads what econ economists say anyway. Uh, I, I think that would honestly be my real answer is that I think a lot of sort of just generally curious pe people who want to read about the social sciences, I think, should read him. Well, you know, like um, there's plenty of like best-selling authors who write economics and he's also a good writer. So I would say... Uh, uh, I would say in the broader world, I would say he's underrated. All right. And last one, podcasts. Well, I think there's a backlash against podcasts. There's, I, uh, I saw someone tweet something that um, listening to podcasts is kind of like polyamory, where it's like a totally fine thing to do, but like deeply shameful to talk about it, uh, the fact that you enjoy it. And I think that's about right. I would say podcasts are at this point uh, adequately rated. <laughs> Fair enough. Jared, do you have any you want to add? I do, I do have one more, actually. This one, I'll just get into it. The Calgary Stampede. Oh, I don't know. Because you guys are from you guys are from Vancouver, right? Yes, this is true. What do you think about this Calgary Stampede? I've never been, so I'm not sure. Uh, it seems incredibly hyped, so I'm not sure how it couldn't be overrated. Well, and to me, what doesn't appeal, it's not the Stampede. If anything, like watching, you know, the Cowboys and Wrangling cattle seems kind of interesting or going on horses i don't exactly know what happens obviously you can tell by what i'm saying right now um but it seems like just a place where you go and you get like deep fried food it's kind of like the peony right and generally i don't find those things particularly interesting or exciting you know like if i can't get a salad I, i'm not sure i really want to go there yeah i think that's about right like it's it's it is kind of like an over like it's a rodeo plus a kind of overgrown county fair plus a sort of general degeneracy within the city. Um, uh, so I would say Calgarians have the adequate rating of that. Well, I, th I find just more people in Canada generally just kind of generally heard that it's a big deal. Well, like, you know, I think people, uh, I think 
rodeos are adequately rated. Like, I can't imagine you guys are like, do you know what fucking rules as rodeos or like, yeah. Actually, this made me think of one last one then for you, Steve. Nahid Nenchi. Oh, I actually haven't followed his mayorship enough to say, to be honest. I don't. I think I don't have a uninformed opinion beyond, you know, generally finding him charismatic. I don't think I, I really know. I guess, you know, and because and I moved to Guelph recently, and, and the mayor here, Cam Guthrie, seems to have been around forever. And, and my sense is he and she was around for like at least a decade, right? So the sort of mayors that can be around for that long, they're, they're people pleasers, right? They're the sort of types that are just recording themselves on their bike, doing cutesy things, kissing puppies, right? Like, that's my image of what it would take to be a mayor of a city for that long. Do you, do you have sympathy to those sorts of, like, folksy mayors, even if it is a bit of a pretense? I don't know. I often think that politics requires, like for a democracy to function, there have to be a kind of professional, ambitious, kind of, by conventional standards, fake kind of person who like can take part in a competitive democracy. So I'm kind of, you know, I, I don't really get that upset about like, Cam Guthrie going, that's his name, right? Uh, talking about like being a musician and how he's in a band and stuff and having a Twitter presence and stuff. I, and I think when I think about what are the alternatives in terms of city governments, often either ideologues, like uh, there's a continual thing where ideologues will run for mayor of Calgary and then they're reminded that Calgary is not as ideologically conservative as people think. They just, you know, don't want regulations on oil and they don't like the Liberal Party. Um, but uh, and I think having ideologues in that kind of like purely executive position can be kind of a disaster. And I think machine politics can also go very badly. So I, I you know, even if I roll my eyes at someone like that, and I probably would not like them if I met them personally, I'm OK with it. This has been uh, an enlightening conversation, Stephen, and I'd like to thank you for joining us here on the Statistically Insignificant podcast. This has been episode 11. Thanks for joining us.